Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It is a real pleasure to introduce to you today our guest, Professor Janice Stein, in the continuing series on Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. Professor Stein is the Bellsberg, a professor of conflict management at the University of Toronto, and she was the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs, where both of us are currently located. Professor Stein is one of Canada's leading authorities on global affairs. It is particularly a pleasure to speak with Janice at the time of the G20 summit in Hamburg. It gives us a real opportunity to look at America's foreign policy in this age of Trump. In addition to examining U.S. foreign policy during the G20, we also have the opportunity to look at a wide range of international relations issues, the Middle East, Korea, U.S. relations with Russia, and then, of course, Trump's own relationship with President Vladimir Putin. So let's turn to the interview with Professor Stein. Welcome, Janice. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Pleasure to be with you, Alan. All right. I wanted to start by having you look at and assess uh, the G20 Hamburg Summit, which just occurred rather recently, The Economist commenting on it said, well, look, all these bilateral meetings, uh, and clearly the most important one that everybody seemed to focus on, certainly the media did, was the Putin-Trump uh, meeting, but none of that will get into the declaration at Hamburg, and of course it didn't. Uh, and The Economist's conclusion was, well, you know, no group, no block now predominates. This is the era, as they called it, of cacophony, and they referenced Ian Bremer and his G-Zero world. I wanted to get your reaction to that kind of perspective. I think The Economist is right that we are at a time of real change, away from an international order, which fairly young established feeling 1989-1990, the last version of it, uh, after the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall fell first and then the Soviet Union disintegrated and created this uh, artificial position for the United States where it had no rivals. Um, nobody was within shouting distance. China had just begun to open its doors. And so the United States truly was hegemonic for at least 10 years, which is a short time. And then things began to change. So there the economist is right that we're in process of change. They're right too that we don't necessarily know what we're moving toward yet. Um, I'm one of those people who believes that the Hamburg G20 meeting was a failure. I do not think it was a success. Many people have written that it was a success. I think it's a very expensive way to hold bilateral meetings. Um, the city center of Hamburg was destroyed by the violence. Um, Angela Merkel was hoping that this would be a demonstration to the authoritarian leaders of the world. 
of how successful democratic protest was. I think you have to stretch your imagination almost beyond capacity to reach that judgment when you have fights in the street and fires in the street of the kind that Hamburg suffered. And all to produce a communique which really revolved around two issues in terms of meaningful kind. One was proceeding with the Paris Agreement. That was no surprise. There were some fence sitters that could have gone the other way. They didn't, so that's an achievement. Uh, but you didn't need this extravaganza for that. And the other was twisting the language of the communique into a pretzel to accommodate Donald Trump's view of strategic trade. But, you know, we had the heads of African governments there. Where were they in the communique? Where, were, where was their voice, really, uh, in the communique? Very weak. Um, I thought it was a very disappointing meeting. Probably not surprising, given that we know where we've come from, but really don't know yet where we're going. Um, I just wanted to follow a quick follow-up on that. I mean, it seems to me that Chancellor Merkel tried very hard uh, to... You get A for effort, <laughs> but you get C for results. <laughs> but uh, particularly with respect to the Africa Forum. Yes. Worked very hard, held a meeting in Johannesburg. Yes. Uh, tried. Uh, you don't the, think that that is... Where's the impact of that in the communique? Where are the follow-on commitments that governments made that they wouldn't have made? So take Canada, for instance, which announced a new development policy, which will be heavily Africa-focused, although it's labeled a feminist foreign policy, but it will be heavily Africa-focused. It was before the summit. It wasn't a result of the Africa Forum. So when I look at these, the real question to me always is, what's the value add? What happened as a result of the processes leading up to this meeting that would not have happened otherwise? In the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, a lot. It was a very significant institution at that time and made a real difference. Much harder to make that argument now. It's a low point, I think. Fair enough. Uh, I guess uh, then the follow-up question really comes from somebody like Richard Haas, of course, who was president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he said, uh, you know, uh, it and the U.S. president, more particularly, represent a real departure for American foreign policy. I think we want to distinguish this president um, from the United States. I think there's no question that this president is a significant departure from what was bipartisan foreign policy for the last 70 years. Mm -hmm. um, what is so stunning to many Americans, and that's why you're reading these angst-ridden columns by largely American writers, by the way, not Europeans. What is so stunning is that the institutional order the United States built is not being attacked by a foreign enemy or a rising power. On the contrary, the rising power, China, is defending it. And Russia wants in uh, rather than out. is being attacked by a president of the United States from within. That's the most damaging kind of attack that can take place. It was something that no theorist, um, no political scientist really foresaw that the attack on the order would come from within the United States, its primary architect and defender for so many years. 
And I think that's what explains Richard Haas's article. The bigger question we all have to grapple with is, does Donald Trump represent something that is enduring in American politics? Is he the consequence uh, and the product of processes that have been building inside the United States for years? Or is he a largely accidental president? If you think he's an accidental president, then you grin and bear for the four years, hope no huge damage is done, and count on the fact, and this is where liberals are, those who defend the liberal international order, count on the fact that the Europeans working with a different president four years from now will be able to repair the damage. That's not a foolish view. Look at Europe in 2017 as opposed to Europe in 2015. A lot of repair has been done. There's a lot of vibrancy. People wrote it off. It was finished. So it's not a view that we should dismiss. But the other view is also compelling that large swaths of the American public are hostile to elite, distrustful of authority, opposed to globalization, whatever it means to them, because people fill that category with different content, don't like international trade, and want whatever this means, a reassertion of sovereignty. If this is a longer-term development, if it is a reaction against the hyper-globalization of 1990 to 2007, then the possibility that the international order changes much greater. Well, then let's, you know, let's follow up on, on that kind of America first strain that clearly are... are it's always been in the United States yeah, at different it's points there. in its history. It's not new. No. It's always been, but it gets activated under certain kinds of conditions. And clearly what happened in the United States, especially since 2000, when China went into the WTO, when it replaced uh, low-end manufacturing in the United States, the United States lost millions of manufacturing jobs that were exported overseas. Those are structural changes. Those are not simply um, a political movement that waxes and wanes. Something was happening inside American society and the American economy, which pushed this America first strain up to the top. And okay. then we need to take it much more seriously. Okay, well, and, but that, you know, and clearly it's an important aspect, the globalization, the economic side. But the liberal order is, of course, that plus, you know, alliances and uh, relationships that have been built. So let's turn to an area of, of real specialty that you've followed and written on, the Middle East. So what does an America first uh, policy mean in the context of the Middle East, and more particularly, the question of Syria? Let me start by saying I don't think Donald Trump and his team have any idea. They, they have not talked through what that means. They have no strategy. Uh, there's no effort to systematically understand what America first would mean in the Middle East. So you have two impulses. Um, and what we've seen in the, for, in the early months of the Trump administration, we see both, right? Uh, we see the America First trade policy, 
uh, even with respect to Saudi Arabia, surprisingly enough, which is an old ally. So no more taking advantage of us. We see an America first policy. It's all about terrorism. That's all it's about. The Middle East is only about terrorism. And if you export it, you're not on our side anymore. We don't want anything to do with you, and we will come after you. And then uh, a disinclination. And here's the America First strategy taps into a very old isolationist tendency in American foreign policy to pull back, to say, this is yours, this is not ours, to solve. We will no longer expand blood and treasure um, on dealing with a conflict that is not ours. And in that sense, there's more continuity than difference between Trump and Obama. Because it was Obama who pulled the United States back over the horizon in the Middle East. He, he would not commit ground troops to the, United, to the Middle East again, no matter what the provocation. One exception was Afghanistan, but he would not. Um, he used covert methods. He used drones. He used special forces. Uh, but he drew a very strong line in the sand. And there's a lot of continuity with what Donald Trump has said. It's surprising. It seems to me, if you look at Obama, yes, the red line issue and the discussion a, with respect... It was a serious mistake in yeah, rhetoric. Right. But uh, it didn't change the policy. The underlying policy was right. there right from the time he became president. And the only time he deviated from that policy was once, the whole eight years, and that was in Libya. In Libya. When yeah. Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice and Samantha Powers talked him into doing it, from a so-called liberal human rights perspective. And he regretted it. And he regards it as his biggest failure. Well, but if that... So you there know. Was a, there's a realist America first strain to Obama's foreign policy in this part of the world. There is a link there, and I take your point. But, I mean, it's not that Obama ever said, oh, all these alliances and all these relationships that we've built in Europe, even Middle East, in Asia, you know, we question that. Obama never questioned the fact that America would continue to play a leadership role. So that can't be our good friend Donald Trump. No, it isn't. But when you ask me about the Middle East, yeah. there, there's more continuity than change, okay. actually, in that part of the world. Right. Let's look at Europe. Um, Trump rocked the boat when he refused to extend open support for Article 5. Five, the collective security provision. Which is the provision. fundamental, fundamental provision that if one state is attacked, the others come to its defense. And in fact, the only time it was ever invoked was after 9-11 to come to the defense of the United States. He's repaired that. He's now repeated twice. Recent, on his most recent trip to Europe, no, I am firmly in support of Article 5. But what does that mean, really? Um, so if that's what the Europeans were looking for from Trump, they got it. But that's not what they're looking for from Trump. What they're looking for is the liberal agenda that Obama articulated on rights, mm -hmm. on the environment, on trade. Uh, Europe really today, and continental Europe, much more so than the old Anglo-Saxon countries, embodies that agenda. This is the European project in a deep sense. And just as they disliked George W. Bush, you know, they intensely, intensely, it's, all, it's only more so with Donald Trump, but it's not only the individual, it's the agenda. 
And there is a deep divide between Europe and the United States. If we look back at the last 15 years or so, only in Obama's eight years was there a meeting of the minds between Europe and the United States. Now, turn to Asia. Asia is very different. The Japanese are absolutely horrified to think that there's no collective security and collective defense because they have one issue and one issue only. That's China and followed by North Korea. They have a long-standing strategic alliance with the United States and they bank on that as rock solid. I think the most um, disturbed power in the, in the world right now is Japan. Its security has been really shaken by what Donald Trump and his team have said. Because mm-hmm. they simply cannot predict his behavior. Were there to be an issue in the South China Sea, were there to be there, and, and again, let's look at the contradictions here because these are never straight lines. South Korea and Japan are sending two quite contradictory messages to the United States at the same time. They always have. Defend us without question in the event of any confrontation, but oh my, my, don't escalate anything because we don't want a confrontation. And that's not changed either. That's a difficult message for any American president to decode at any given moment in time. And so you go one way with Obama, you go another way with Donald Trump. But there, there are, there's, these, this is a very difficult moment for everybody else in Asia as they come to grips finally with an assertive China that says, all of Asia is my backyard. Well, okay, let, let's try to bring that together then in terms of the North Korea issue, because clearly Trump, and it was Trump that elevated the issue. No, I mean, Obama put, did. Well, Obama, you know, in effect said something to... He told something Donald to, Trump in the transition... That this you is the most serious this issue. This is your most serious challenge. This is what but I consider I think, the most serious threat to the security of the United States. I don't disagree, I guess, but the question is, what is then... Trump's, what is Trump's, yeah, what is Trump's so, either tactical or strategic advance? Let's be fair again. Obama had not. He had no strategy toward North Korea. No. Clinton had two. <laughs> Both failed. One was engagement and the other was coercion. So let's understand that North Korea is what we call a wicked problem for which there are no strategic answers. And I think people do not want to write about this or talk about it, but North Korea has joined the nuclear club. It's there. Everybody else now will have to adjust to a nuclear North Korea. We've adjusted to a nuclear India. We've adjusted to a nuclear Pakistan. We've adjusted to a nuclear Israel. We will, the world will adjust to a nuclear North Korea. Let's add one other strain to this argument. Why have the North Koreans so relentlessly pursued nuclear weapons? Because they accelerated their program. They accelerated their program after George Bush told them they were part of the axis of evil. And they looked around and they saw regime change against Saddam Hussein, who tried but didn't get to nuclear weapons. Gaddafi gave his up and lost his head as a result. Any strategic power who has the means and the resources and fears the United States and its intentions makes a wholly rational decision to go nuclear in the world we're in. Now, unfortunately, there's, there are what we call sequela or consequences, because if the North Koreans do it, the Japanese will certainly do it. And 
and as their security dilemma tightens. And so we may see a rush of proliferators over the next 15 or 20 years in ways that we have not before. I think that genie's out of the bottle. I don't believe any U.S. president has an answer to this. There is no answer. It's, it's done. So if, if what you're saying is correct, then the question becomes really that, the yes, the focus on North Korea, for sure, but you're effectively saying you can't stop it and you have to acknowledge that, right. so that the real issue for American foreign policy really becomes Japan and, and South Korea. That's right. Not, not North Korea and not even China the, the at the end of the day. So well, what do you do there? I'm not convinced that a nuclear Japan is more dangerous than a nuclear China. So Might I think not be. What's dangerous, what's dangerous is a fundamental shift in the balance of power mm -hmm. in Asia in which China is the undisputed hegemonic power. Um, it is asserting its right to reclaim its historic position in that region. And if you look at the global economy in 1800 and you look at the reach of China, that's a, a reasonable argument. But that is shocking for Japan and for the Koreas. And to the extent that very frightened powers go nuclear in the wake of a very assertive China, this is probably a bigger problem for China than it is for the United States. That's fair. The position you seem to be arguing, however, seems to me to be a much more uh, realist slash spheres of influence, uh, spheres of interest. I think that's where we're going. A la John Mearsheimer. A la well, Stephen not, Walt. Well, John Mearsheimer, you know, building John, off of Waltz, yeah. always argued that nuclear weapons not a problem. You just give them to everybody. No, I, I, John, the difference is John Mearsheimer argued that we should simply proliferate actively. Right. That's not the argument that I'm making, but okay. I am arguing that we may be at the end of the universal liberal international order. Mm -hmm which really hit its stride in the 1990s, because before that we had a Soviet Union and a China that was challenging all the time. But we had these 20 years. That period is over. We will probably return to a world order in which there are competing poles. Uh, that's been the norm rather than the exception. And the other poles do not share liberal values, are not committed to human rights as an overarching principle for state behavior. Uh, China's deep commitment to managing climate change grows out of a strategic interest um, in China rather than out of a deep sensitivity to ecological justice in the way that it's framed um, in the West. So Europe is an anomaly in this world um, that we're moving into. It's the repository of rights rhetoric, um, but it's isolated. It's the only one that is. The United States, China, and Russia in its sphere of influence uh, will use a different language. We'll think about politics in a different way. And the hard part of all of this is there will be limits to what the United States is able to accomplish. There always were, there always were, even at the height of its power, there are limits to what the United States, but those limits will deepen. And so is Trump the reflection or the driver of this change? 
It's both. He's both. Well, and in, in trying to bring some maybe possible resolution to that, I'm sure you've read his Warsaw speech. Terrible speech. In which he said, Terrible the, speech. the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. What is he talking about? So this speech, it's very interesting, actually, to watch the reaction to this speech. Uh, because certainly Trump supporters in the United States and those in the journalist community, the scholarly community, the think tank community describe this as a foundational speech. I, I, I was stunned because how does he define the basic threat to the West? It's Islamic terrorism. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So he has wrapped himself and his administration in Huntingtonian language of a clash of civilization. It's not a right space speech. It is not the West as Western values. Um, it is not the West as custodians of the Enlightenment and hopes for progress. It's none of that. It is the West as, and I'm going to put one word in his mouth only, as Christian involved in a life and death struggle against Islamic terrorism. Now that is a very narrow, blinkered, and historically inaccurate construction of the West. And so it's stunning to me that people have described this speech as foundational for his administration, and they have. Very serious people. Mm -hmm. It's. I think this is, reflects the Bannon-Miller wing of the administration, frankly. The polls loved it, but I don't think they understood it. Right. I mean, I guess it's a question of how do you interpret these phrases? No, he said it, but he said it. Yeah. You don't have to interpret it. If you read it carefully, find one reference to human rights. Find no. one reference to Western values. Find one reference to freedom. Find democracy. Democracy yeah. never mentioned. Yeah. It's all about resisting Islamic terror. Okay. Well, then, impoverished view of West. Then let, let's go to one kind of last area, and that is our good friend Russia. And how do we understand Trump, and particularly his admiration for Putin. Vladimir Putin? What, what, is, what is behind that? What, what is it that he's thinking about when he, when he does this stuff? I, I don't know the answer to that question. You need to be a, a, a psychologist in the room, frankly, to understand this. From everything we know, he met, they met when he did business in Russia. Um, what did he like about him? To the extent we can understand, and nobody's really answered this question who knows him well, but to the extent we can understand it, he got things done. He's a driver, he made deals, he was effective, he isn't bound by process, he's not part of the coastal elites, and which he hates um, in the same way that Richard Nixon hated them. Um, but to, to vest this kind of admiration in Trump, um, I, I, to the extent that it imperils his presidency, and uh, that was, the, the Putin-Trump meeting was interesting in Hamburg, not because it was historic, or, but to watch the body language and the kind of 
mutual admiration that existed between these two men as they leaned into each other and the mutual effort to, of one to rescue the other um, is, you know, mystifying. Um, for Putin, it's clearly that Donald Trump was not Hillary Clinton, whom he hated in an unreasoning way. Um, to, to explain his hatred of Hillary Clinton just because of Libya, where he uh, was betrayed, it doesn't seem to me to be a very convincing argument. It can't be the whole story. Unfortunately, it is a truly terrible relationship um, that is damaging, particularly to Trump as he moves forward and makes him very vulnerable and yet he can't seem to break free of it. It's a mystery, Alan. Well, you know, you look at that and you, you see him come away and announce, well, we're setting up this uh, joint cybersecurity that initiative. That bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, as somebody said, was letting the fox uh, into the, the chicken. chicken coop. Yeah. I mean, Russia, we know who the serious violators of cybersecurity are. Russia's not alone, but it is among the it's among the five or six most expert in the world, number one. Why would you let the Russians into any partnership that deals with cybersecurity? And the other issue is too that the United States is deeply penetrated um, and compromised. Russian cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So why would you make yourself vulnerable? It, that that I, there, there's no way that one could do with with and with that proposal in, in anything like a, a reasoned way. And in fact, he let it drop as soon as he came home and people yes. spoke to him and obviously, frankly, told them how stupid it was. It went away. Yeah, I, I guess you, you could ask yourself the question: Did he really? Does he really know? It's not clear uh, that he American know. cybersecurity. It's not clear he does at all. No, how would he know? Yeah, because he so dislikes, apparently, the intelligence community yeah. in the United States, which drives, obviously, the cyber yeah. security matters. And the military. And, and the military, military sure. But I, I, that's probably an interesting note to conclude on, that the strategic mistake that any president, even in a deeply democratic society, makes in attacking intelligence agencies. Um, if you do that they will get you, okay. even in a democracy, because they have access to information. They are strategic leakers, and that is going on all the time. You have no recourse against them. So I do not think, you know, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in the United States, in Canada, any political leader who takes on the intelligence community humiliates them, degrades them, without evidence of misbehavior, is committing political suicide. So let me conclude with this. Where, and I won't hold you to it, where do you think the liberal order will be after four years? And in I'm Europe. In Europe. Mm -hmm. So this, the centerpiece for, particularly I take it, human rights and humanitarian rights will be lodged there and not in North, North America, and in particular, the United right. States. Right. And now, that's not insignificant. There are 450 million Europeans yep. um, who are post-Mars, mm -hmm. um, yep. and they have a voice, and they have assets, but that's where it will be. Okay. 
And one last, last question. Where does Canada go with this? Canada is in a very, very vulnerable position. It's the, of every country in the world that is most vulnerable to the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And our prime minister has been very mature in recognizing that and has not engaged in any undisciplined behavior with respect to the Trump administration, which is quite remarkable. There have been no cheap shots by cabinet members or MPs, which is even more remarkable. Certainly under the Christian administration, that was not true with respect to George Bush. There's been iron discipline exercised by the prime minister's office and by the prime minister, uh, growing out of the recognition that we can be swamped if trade negotiations go badly. I think what will be interesting to watch is when the Prime Minister is quiet about what, in order to keep as much room for maneuver as he can as the trade negotiations begin. Until those NAFTA negotiations are over, you cannot expect this Prime Minister, unfortunately for the Europeans, to be the leader of the global human rights agenda. Well, Janice, I want to thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure and a great discussion, and thank you uh, very much. Pleasure to be with you, Alan. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.